Good morning, everybody. I'm going to jump straight in this morning because there's a lot to talk about. There was a shop window in Oxford where Tom and I used to live that displayed a huge variety of novelty gift t-shirts. Tom and I used to like to go into town and stand and look at these t-shirts and kind of chuckle at the jokes and walk away spending no money. Um, this is one of Tom's favorites. It says, body of a god, shame it's Buddha. <laughs> But for me, it was a fridge magnet that caught my eye. Back in the early days when I was an undergraduate at Oxford Brooks, I noticed this one. It's a gargoyle where you see, you see these all over the city. And it says here, why study? The more I study, the more I know. The more I know, the more I forget. The more I forget, the less I know. So why study? Forgive me for explaining the joke, but Oxford is, one of, is the oldest, one of the most respected seats of learning in the world, and so this is kind of funny. And I watched it and I clocked it for many years as we were living in this city because it's the epicenter of intellectualism there in Oxford. There are some brilliant minds and eminent scholars all just walking around town. You bump into them, like, you bump into them. And for other reasons entirely, Tom and I found ourselves living in Oxford for a good decade. We were kind of like um, ethnographers studying, watching, the clever people. And here's what I noticed. Clever people, smart people, are arguably the people who are most in tune with their own ignorance. Hear me out. They're acutely aware of what they don't know. It seems that the more you learn about anything, any given subject, the closer you get to being an authority on a subject, the more in tune you become to all of the things that there still are to learn. People in this city, in that city, have to think really hard before they can claim to know anything. They have to do rigorous research, they have to be able to cite evidence, and then still, they're only really able, able to give an informed opinion. There's still so much to learn, and when they zoom out from their area of expertise, they're met with this breathtakingly vast sea of other subjects about which they know absolutely nothing. It's a humbling experience of the best kind because it's one that leaves people open to learning. Thinking that I know it all closes my mind to better ideas, and it also makes me a bit of a pain to be around. You can trust people who say that they don't have all the answers. None of us do. Only God does. So not knowing is a great thing because it frees us up from trying to do God's bit. This all works out really conveniently for me today because today's Bible passage is one that for me brings up more questions than answers. But I am gonna wholeheartedly offer you all of my questions, as well as some of the things that I've discovered as a result of asking them. So in case you've not been here over the past three weeks, Ben's done this amazing job of introducing us to the book of Ruth. Um, very quick recap, previously in Ruth, we meet, we meet Naomi. She's an older lady, she has a husband, she has two sons. Her two sons get married, her husband dies, her two sons die. She's left with the two daughter-in-laws. This is ancient biblical times, patriarchal society, this is not a good situation for her. She sends one of the women away, she tries to send them both away, go home to your families, I've got nothing for you. One of them agrees to go, the other one, Ruth, insists on staying. This is a world run by men and for men, but these two ladies, Ruth and Naomi, don't have a lot going for them. So let's see what's gonna happen here. In Ruth chapter three, 
I'm going to invite you to come along for the journey. Here's Parker. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find you a home for you, where you will be provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Okay, I'm going to invite you to come along with me through my thought process. Please bear with me. This might be a little bit uncomfortable. I love the word. I believe in the word. I love God. I love this church. We're going to be okay. <laughs> if I'm going to engage in this book, with this book, this is a love letter from God to me then I have to choose to acknowledge my own context and then extend myself beyond it to try best as I can to appreciate the biblical context. What is the biblical context? In brief, life was awful for women. The world was very unfair. They were basically either slaves or had to be married. There were rules, laws, and proper procedures to keep everything in check which basically means to keep women in their place. Boaz comes across as a bit of a hero in this book. He is. It's fair to, to liken him to a redeemer character. We can see God reflected in his actions. But he's not actually the focus of this story. So I'm going to keep the light shining on the women today. 
I am coming at this book from the perspective of a privileged, educated, informed, able-bodied, married with children, well-traveled, multicultural female of color who was raised in a family of female empowering um, parents, and I am now married to a female empowering husband. Who I am has a huge effect on how I read this book. It has a huge effect on how I read anything. It isn't fair or right for me to judge the Bible and this story with today's standards. That's not fair. I need to understand a little bit, at least, the biblical, cultural, and historical context here. But the biblical, historical, and cultural context does not get to completely dismiss me. There's a balance to be struck. When I read this chapter, a few things leap out at me every single time. I notice that Naomi comes up with a rather eyebrow-raising plan for Ruth to doll herself up and make a move on Boaz. <laughs> My snarky brain interprets this as Naomi saying to Ruth, hey, thanks for doing all that gleaming. We're off to a much better start than expected. Now, what shall we do to get out of this poverty? I found a way that we could stop suffering and I wouldn't have to lose my land. Listen up. What I need you to do is to go and hit on Boaz. <laughs> These two women are in it together. They're in this together, but the buy-in is not equal. How does Ruth respond? Verse five, I will do whatever you say. I find myself wanting to pull Ruth aside. Hey, Ruth. Can I speak to you for a second in the other room? Babes, I'm not entirely comfortable with this situation. All the flags go up. I try really hard to simmer down and to invoke biblical context and understanding, but here are some of the thoughts that are also flying through my head. Why is Ruth so devoted to Naomi? They must have been really tight before the whole world got turned upside down for them. Or is this codependency? Abuse, Stockholm Syndrome. This is where um, you know, the victim develops loyalty to the kidnapper. Simple-mindedness, a lack of better options. Doesn't she want to go home to her mom? I bet you her mom would really like to have her back. Maybe they don't get along. I wonder what happened there. Maybe Ruth's mom's already died. I don't know how old everybody is. How old is everybody in this story? What's the general lifespan back then? Why didn't Naomi and Ruth go together to glean the barley? Maybe Naomi has a disability. I don't know. Was she taking advantage of Ruth? I hope not. Why didn't she hit on Boaz if the age gap was more appropriate that way? I don't know. It's a good thing that Boaz didn't take advantage of Ruth because she was in a very vulnerable situation. That was really good of him. He had already clearly noticed her, right? We've seen his favor turned toward her. She must have been beautiful. It's probably a good thing that she was beautiful. Why is the Bible so patriarchal? Why is the world this way? It isn't great. There's a lot of questions here. It's no surprise to me that for generations, people have used this book to abuse women. Why is everything so messed up? Are we ever going to be able to put this right? Is it all too hard, and should I just go home? As a woman, safe to say I get triggered when I read this book. My thoughts escalate really quickly, and I admit that I'm being intentionally facetious today because I'm trying to make a point. The point is this, it's okay to think your questions. 
It's okay to ask your questions. It's actually good to ask your questions. For far too long, believers have found themselves in this place of needing to fear what we don't know. And we mistaken questioning for a lack of faith. We, the church, sometimes can repress curiosity, our own and others, because questioning feels a little wrong, it's a little naughty. I know I've been guilty to subscribing to this in the past, but here's something that's very true. Faith and doubt go together. I don't actually think you can have faith unless you have some questions. Jackie Pullinger says that faith starts when you get to the end of what you've already got. Critical thinking is not at odds with faith. It's very necessary. It's a very necessary part of engaging with the scriptures. Usually, the only people who want you to not ask questions are the ones who stand to lose something in the answers. So please, don't ever stop asking questions. Pray, God can handle it. You won't offend him. He knew that we would be here today reading this book. So let's explore it together. This is not a how-to manual. This is not God's advice to women on how to land a husband. It is not God's standard for how to be the most historically noteworthy daughter-in-law. In reality, we can't actually swear devotion and to go where they go and be people with the people for everyone. That doesn't make sense, it's very intense. That's just what Ruth did. It's a story, and stories are what set us apart from the other animals. We've been called storytelling animals, homo fabula. We are storytelling beings. We are part human, part story. We trade in story, it's our currency. I've just spent the first chunk of my time talking to you about all the things I don't know about Ruth, and there's plenty. It's really good, actually, to notice what's not there, because there's a lot not there, partly because this helps us to stay focused on what is there, but partly because of something that I call the Hello Kitty effect. Here she is. <laughs> People love Hello Kitty. I, she's fine, I don't know. I, 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 Whatever. Growing up in Asia, I know for a fact that people go absolutely nuts over this character. And it's interesting because there's something significant missing here, other than her body right now, but who, who can see what's missing? Her mouth. She has no mouth. I read an article once that talked about this being her superpower because she has no mouth, people who look at her project onto her their own feelings and their own situations and their own vibe. And, as, and she can reflect it back to them. She mirrors it back to them and there's some interesting kind of connection between her fans and, and her face. As we read the Bible, it's okay to not fret about what isn't there because what isn't there actually leaves room for something else. It leaves room for possibilities, for imagination, for interpretation, projection, and personalization. These are not evil things. It's okay to dabble in this. So as we turn back to the Book of Ruth, there are some key elements of storytelling that I'm gonna draw your attention to this morning. The first is structure and plot, the next is theme, and the third is character. We know from childhood that every story has to have three things, right? What are they? Beginning, middle, and end. Absolutely. 
At the beginning of the book of Ruth, the premise is set up. The scene is set. Naomi is a woman who's lost everything. Next, we meet the protagonist. Who's the protagonist? Clues in the title, it's Ruth. Ruth is the main character of the book of Ruth. Ruth's arrival on the scene brings with it what we call in creative writing the inciting um, incident. It's the thing that sets the whole story into motion. She devotes herself to Naomi. Today, in chapter three, we're smack bang in the middle of the action. It's called the rising action. This is where Naomi and Ruth come together and come up with this plan that is going to take Ruth to the very peak of the narrative arc. By the end of today's reading, we've already come to the falling action. We kind of know that everything's gonna work out. We can pretty, be pretty sure that Naomi and Ruth are gonna be okay, but there's gonna be more on that next week. For now, we're going to have a look at the general shape of this story and know that there are lots of things in this story that are not the point. Okay, I've covered quite a few of those already. So then what is the point? There is actually something here for all of us. Theme-wise, this is a redemption story. It not only tracks part of the lineage that eventually is going to lead us to Jesus, which is huge, but it's also a story for anyone who finds themselves in the rising action of life or even in the falling action. Something has happened in your life and you are now set in motion to see how, what, how it's gonna play out. It's a story for everyone. It's safe to say that neither Naomi nor Ruth saw themselves in this situation. They probably both had quite similar visions of grandchildren and cousins playing together, grandparents babysitting as the young parents go out for a date night. I'm guessing that's what they were hoping for and it hasn't happened. This story is about the two women dealing with the fact that reality has not delivered in their favor. Can anyone relate to that? Their lived experience doesn't match up with what their ideals were, or even their faintest hopes. We don't know who's to blame here. Sometimes there's not somebody to blame. Life just delivers us into a hot mess every now and then. And I suspect that might be something that someone in this room today can relate to. This is a story of two women in an utterly hopeless state. They weren't planning this. But now they have to come up with plan B. Or plan C, D, E, F, G. We don't know how many attempts they've already made. I think they've got, they're, they're scrappy. They've probably tried some things already. Here's what we do know. And if you ask around later today or later this week, I'm guessing you'll find some people who are willing to share their version of this story. The God who weaves his bigger story throughout every page of Ruth, every word of Ruth, is the same God who wants to weave his bigger story through every moment of our lives. And he also happens to be the God of plan Bs, Cs, Ds, Es, Fs, and so on. Because reality is that our life journey will include hiccups, breakups, crises, obstacles, challenges, changes of course, pivots, U-turns, dead ends. I wasn't honestly very interested in this story while I was thinking about them being of noble character and being really sweet and mild and winsome and devoted to one another and waiting for the benevolent 
grace of Boaz to shine upon them. I just, I tune out a little bit with that, I'm being honest. But on closer inspection, Ruth and Naomi are not helpless pawns here at all. They've got a lot to show for themselves. They are brave women who left the beaten path. They've gone off piste completely because they hit a dead end. They had no choice and desperate times called for desperate measures. Now, women don't get as many mentions in the Bible as men do. Ruth and Naomi are particularly important, not just because of that, but because of another very, very important feature. They get along. Historically, here comes a quote from a female scholar. Historically, the relationships between females in the Bible are anything but harmonious, as evidenced by the relationships between Sarah and Hagar, Leah and Rachel, Hannah and Penaniah. Biblical feminine relationships are repeatedly riddled with jealousy and hatred. That's Ornette Avonry. Jealousy and hatred. The same can be said for real life sometimes. Women don't always get along. But incredible things happen when women do support each other. When we reach over obstacles of age and culture and status, everybody wins. This is another t-shirt that I like. And this one I liked so much that I found the original creator and paid money for it. It just didn't get here in time for me to wear it today. But um, this is true. This is true. And men, thank you for bearing with us as we talk about this because I think it's important that we all hear it. Women, we need one another. We're not in a race against each other. We're in a really special opportunity to form a sisterhood that is revolutionary. It's insanely easy to let insecurity and comparison fester between us. It's easy because we're all so amazing. It's hard to notice the beautiful qualities in one another without then turning critical eyes on ourselves. But it's got to stop. It's not new information. It's not revelation, but it is revolutionary, potentially. God calls every Christian to make a good difference in this world. I can't think of a much more powerful act of resistance than women getting along with each other the impact as women who love and support and bring out the best in one another is huge. When we do this, we all win, and the dark powers of patriarchy lose their power. I dare us to test this. So men, thank you for not tuning out. Ladies, please keep listening very, very carefully. All of us, let's keep listening, because this come, here comes a quote from another female scholar talking about the Book of Ruth. The purpose of the patriarchal framework in the story is not to surrender to patriarchy, but rather to illustrate how to operate meaningfully despite living in one. Ruth, having acknowledged that, created a lasting impact by operating off the tensions that were present in her society. How? How did Ruth operate off those tensions? She went right off piste. She left the beaten track. She breaks from convention at almost every single turn by devoting herself to Naomi, that was unusual. By going to glean barley, that was illegal. She listens to Naomi's plan to get dressed up and go and visit Boaz, 
but she doesn't do it exactly as Naomi said. Naomi said, go and wait for him to tell you what to do. She goes and she tells him what she would like him to do. It's unconventional. It amounts essentially to a female to male marriage proposal. It was very unusual. And intermarriage with a Moabite was illegal according to the, the Torah. So Ruth was, pa was powerless in her patriarchal society. There was a very big disadvantage that she was facing, but she was not completely powerless. She used her agency to take some calculated risks. She didn't have a whole lot going for her, but forgive the double negative, she did not have nothing going for her. She understood her circle of control. Who knows what the circle of control is? Oh, good, this is life-changing. You might be familiar with the circle of control or have seen it online somewhere. What we have here in the middle is what you can control, what you can always control, your words, your behavior, and mindset. Outside of that, you have your circle of influence, your, um, your choices, your success, other people's opinions of you. You can kind of affect change there a little bit, who you vote for, things like that. Beyond that is the circle of concern, but you have no control. Other people's mistakes, other people's behaviors, the environment, media, I mean, celebrities, the weather, these are just examples that they're giving you. To understand that life falls somewhere, everything falls somewhere in one of these circles. There are some things you can change, and there are some things you want to change, and there are some things that you have to make peace with. Here's another one, whether or not to apologize, uh, whether or not they apologize, how they speak to me. Things like that are outside of our control most of the time. Now, these, uh, these images illustrate that we all have the ability to affect change to a certain degree. <clears throat> no matter how difficult a situation we find ourselves in, we are never completely powerless. All of us. We run into problems when we try to control things that are beyond our control. We love to have control. We love to be sure of what's going to happen, to get our ducks lined up. One plus one should always equal two forever and ever. Amen. We like to be sure of that, to be certain of that. I want to be certain that if I live a healthy lifestyle, I will remain free from disease. I want to be certain that if I marry a good person, I will spare myself from heartache. Father Richard Rohr calls this the idol of certitude. We don't always get it. Likewise, we can get stuck in doom and gloom when we fail to see that there are actually some things inside our circle of control. It's quite easy to swing the other way and go, oh, there's absolutely nothing I can do here. It's not true. Ruth knew the difference. She's given us a beautiful example of somebody who understands her circle of control and does the very best she can with it. And I think when we do this, God does tend to get involved. He does tend to move mountains. But what about the out, outer circles, the things that fall beyond what we can reach? I've got two ideas for this as I wrap up. The first comes from high literature, the poet Keats. When it comes to dealing with life beyond our circle of control, this is not him talking yet, I'm just saying I'm about to tell you, for the outside circle, we can ask God to help us to develop what Keats calls negative capability. This is revolutionary to me. Here's him. Negative capability, that is when a man or woman is capable of being in uncertainties, 
mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. I am not a Keats-level poet. I dabble with haikus. But I personally would adjust this to call it faith. Try it on, faith. When someone is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. The second idea, and this is my final point, relates to main character syndrome. Ruth is the main character in this story. We can see very clearly, if we look for it, that there were things that she did have power to influence, whether she committed to Naomi and whether she was going to go take those risks um, physically to glean the wheat and to go and see Boaz. There were also things that were outside of her control, the patriarchy, where Boaz happened to live, how he would respond to her proposal, and whether or not the other guy, you know, the other redeemer he mentions, whether he was interested or not, no one could have controlled that. You are the main character in your story. Every single thing that happens to you is part of your story. And it's the same for me. And it's the same for the person sitting next to you. How does that work? Here's something that we might need to remind each other of every now and then. Like it or not, while we go about being the main character in our own story, we also get to play a supporting role in everyone else's story. Several supporting roles. It's wild. Naomi and Boaz gave us beautiful examples of this. Boaz didn't take advantage. He reassured her. He sent her home with a full measure of what he had to give her. And then he followed proper procedures. And he got it all done really quickly. Imagine if we supported one another like that. Naomi allowed Ruth to stay with her. She's like, this is a mess and I don't see where it's going to go. But I'm going to let this happen because I sense there's something bigger going on. There's a balance to be struck. We get our various roles in life muddled sometimes. At least I do. Very many years ago, our church in Hong Kong was um, preparing for an acoustic night of worship, much like um, what's coming up this week. And as is often the case, Tom was working on scheduling the band, and he was having trouble um, with a couple of spots in the band. And he came to me and he said, hey, I'm struggling, but if you're willing, I think there's actually something you could do to help. Now, I did used to sing BVs on the worship band, so this was not overly unusual. But then he said this. Hey, so Craig's up for it, and he's actually the only possible percussionist I can find, but he really wants to bring his wife, but they don't have a babysitter, so... You can see where this is going, right? I, I couldn't. I couldn't see it. I was so firmly entrenched in my main character syndrome, my internal narrator cleared its throat, <clears throat> and it said this. Tom was in a bind. He approached his industrious wife, Jacinta, knowing that somehow she would be able to save the day. It would be a challenge, but she was never one to shy away from a challenge. She would grit her teeth. She would watch some tutorials. She would practice really, really hard. Yes, it could be done. She would save the day. 
She fixed her husband with a stoic glance and said, I'll do it. Tom's relief was palpable. Great, thank you so much. Wait. Just so we're clear, what? <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> he was asking me to babysit. I thought he might be asking me to go away and learn a brand new instrument in the space of a week. I don't, I don't play percussion. I don't play percussion. It didn't even factor in my brain that he might be asking me to take the opportunity to take one for the team, literally, and to step aside and allow someone else to step up and do what they do best. Now, you're better than me. I have an unrealistic, unrealistic estimation of my own abilities paired with a savior complex. I'm still working on it. But <laughs> jokes aside, how often do we fail to see that the very best use of our time and resources might actually be in supporting someone else? A supporting role. They get Oscars too. It's a beautiful thing to create a platform on which someone else gets to stand. And if we get so busy dealing with the things inside our circle and with being a supporting role for others, we don't waste as much energy or time on the things that we can't control. You know, we bring ourselves a great deal of suffering and we feed anxiety when we fixate on problems that fall beyond our remit. And equally, we bring ourselves and others problems when we refuse to exercise the agency we have inside of our circle of control. So I'm going to wrap up now. Um, if you're a female and you would like to kind of make a stand in your heart today along the lines of anything that I've said, um, I'm just going to say these last few things to you, and God sees you and God knows. If we want to be brave and we want to stand together, to make a sign to God of our solidarity that we're committed to making this church a really safe place and a beautiful sisterhood. That when things go wrong between us, we try our very best to put them right. And that we will notice and call out and encourage the goodness, the talent, and the mystery that we see in each other and not let it bother us at all. Let's do that, let's just say that to God. And let's also pray this morning for anybody who needs God's grace to sort out their roles and their circles, to prompt us into action if we're here in our circle of control and finding ourselves unable to move, unable to exercise that agency. And also to let go of the things that we've wrongly been trying to control. Ruth's given us a beautiful example of how to do this. And so I'm going to close today with the words of the serenity prayer. This prayer is famous in 12-step recovery programs, but it is no less powerful in life for all of us, recovery or not. I haven't got a slide for it because I want us to try and remember it, try and remember it this week. So I'm going to say it a couple of times. If you know it, go ahead and pray it in your heart. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, 
and the wisdom to know the difference. One more time. Uh, why don't you stand because we're going to sing as well. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.